Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 6, The Good, the Bad, and the Foolish. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. With the peace and prosperity of the nation summarized in our last episode, and that covenantal linchpin reminder in place in last week's episode, it's time for a seminal moment in my relationship with my people. Some think quite earnestly that this is the seminal moment, but we are saving that superlative place for later. Right now, it's time for my temple to finally get built. Once again, it is not something I asked for. This is another human idea. I knew that if I let the people have the human king they wanted, the very big important idea would be lost that I am king. I always have been and always will be. I also know that something else will be lost as I let them build a house for me, or at least for my name. I will become smaller in their eyes. Even though Solomon is going to be very careful in his language here in a minute, and the big thinkers will understand the symbolic nature of this edifice, I am still going to go down a notch in people's emotional sense of who I am. All this time, I have been careful to be seen by my people as being unlike other gods. I have not been a local deity restricted to a particular territory like all the neighbor's idols. I have been Yahweh, the Creator, who has appeared, spoken, and made myself manifest however and wherever I've pleased in many places, without regard to borders or political jurisdiction. Now, however, my presence will be localized. However, this is something I will use most intentionally as we move forward. And just as I've now significantly incorporated the human monarchy into the Abra plan, the temple that's replacing my tabernacle will have great importance in the grand scheme of things as well. And because of that great importance, a great deal of time is spent in the detailed description of its construction, from Solomon's friendly relationship with his dad's pal up north, King Hiram of Tyre, the source of the best cedar and cypress timber in the area, to the nuance of every last carved decorative pomegranate. You obsessive-compulsive types are more than welcome to take in the entire breadth of these preparations on your own, if you like. They can be found in 1 Kings 5-7 through 7 and 2 Chronicles 2-4. through 4. As you might expect, there are a few things I think you should notice. First of all, there is a theme of excellence throughout. Only the finest materials will suffice to be ingredients in my house. Solomon doesn't reach out to Hiram because Tyre's got the only wood around. He reaches out to Tyre because they've got the best wood around. Likewise, the stone that is quarried in the hill country isn't the only stone around. It's the best. 
The best bronze craftsman alive is put to work creating the myriad bronze works required to festoon and equip my spectacular dwelling, from giant bronze pillars to a vast pool seven feet deep and forty-five feet around of solid bronze. It will hold twelve thousand gallons of water, all balanced on the haunches of a dozen great bronze bulls. Amazing stuff. This bronze craftsman is of great importance because he's using his artistic and practical abilities in my service and to my glory. This should remind you of my old pal Bezalel from the first time we did this living together thing with Israel. He was the one I pointed out, uh, along with his sidekick Ohiolab, back in Exodus 31, as someone anointed by us with creativity and craftsmanship. Back when we mentioned him here on the way, we spent some time helping you see parallels in your life, in terms of gifts of practical and or artistic abilities with which we've anointed you that can be used to our service and glory. Well, without belaboring that point, here it is again, with another fine example of a fellow who to this point just thought he was handy, getting the chance to worship me with his hands and handiwork. Take a moment and ponder how you might do the same with what we've given you. Even better, ask somebody who knows you pretty well for what they think you can do with your gifts to honor the one who gave them to you. Solomon's bronze worker is also a quiet symbol of the fact that all this work being done within the nation of Israel is all done with a view towards the eventual blessing of all humanity. He's only half Hebrew, on his mother's side, the tribe of Naphtali. His dad, the now dearly departed gent from whom he learned the secrets of bronze, was from Tyre and outside the law and covenant of Moses. I am sure you've noticed the recurrence of this outsider feature along the way in others like Rahab, Yael, and Ruth. We should mention that this important craftsman from Tyre shares his king's name of Hiram, not because that's a big deal, but because he's the only worker ever named in the whole project. Hiram the Bronzeman, however, is not the only worker. Far, far from it and the amount of labor required for this project is enormous. This, of course, attests to the greatness of Solomon and the grandness of his undertaking. But labor will also play a surprising role in the next generation. The need for labor, and lots of it, is another reason Solomon is building my house instead of David. The nation is at a place of peace and strength and the energy of the king and his cabinet needn't be focused on warfare. Whereas David conscripted soldiers, Solomon conscripts laborers. Solomon also puts to work all the leftover ites in the land, the Amorites, Hittites, and whatever elseites that weren't destroyed but remained and grew by the generation. They're conscripted, in 1 Kings 9, to work on the grand projects of Solomon. Members of the northern tribes get drafted too in a one-month-away, two-months-home arrangement so they can cut that top-shelf timber up north in Tyre, as well as to quarry and cut that good stone in the hills, then to put all the pieces together in Jerusalem. 
All of it is very, very hard work. Then come the huge tasks of decorating, furnishing, and equipping the temple with about ten times the supporting infrastructure the tabernacle had. Now, instead of one gold lampstand, there's going to be ten. Instead of just the cherubs on top of the ark, there are going to be two giant cherub statues standing at the back of the holy place, close to ten feet tall apiece, with nearly twenty-foot wingspans and so on, and so on. The only thing remaining unchanged in the whole shebang has just been mentioned. My ark, the locus of my Shekinah, the Hebrew word for my presence among my people. That needs no improvement. And so the stones are finally laid, all carefully cut at the quarry as described in First Kings verse 7 so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron is heard in my temple while being built. Not exactly the unchiseled stones we instructed Moses to use in Exodus 20 when putting together ad hoc altars to me along the way, but honoring the spirit of that command. Those stones are laid upon a substantial foundation set over that threshing floor David purchased back at the end of a couple episodes ago. Then the interior is lined with cedar panels, and the floors are laid with cypress so that not a speck of interior stone is visible. Ornate olive wood doors, luxurious borders, decorative carvings, all overlaid with gold, are put in place. The Holy of Holies is readied with the two giant golden cherubim sternly facing the entrance, ready to stand guard over my ark once it is moved to its new home. And just as was so with my tabernacle, everything that is part and parcel of my temple has meaning. Those twelve great bronze bowls holding up the massive bronze pool obviously are the twelve tribes, mighty in their strength when they are united together under me. The pomegranate that adorns the pillars and borders is a symbol of the abundance of our creation and the refreshment of our spirit. In that regard, even more telling to our long-term efforts is the pomegranate's riot of seeds, a symbol not only of fertility, but of our promise to rescue all humanity through the seed of Abraham. Another glaring meaning to be found in the decorations of the temple rests on those two massive cherubim that will stand guard over my ark. They are a stark symbol not only of the vast armies of heavenly hosts they represent, but of the entire situation humanity finds itself in as they also are reminders of Eden, or rather of being banished from Eden because of sin. As cherubim are set to guard Eden's border after Adam and Eve are banished. That's Genesis 3.22, if you need a refresher. All this physical symbolism will be paired with the meaning inherent in all the atoning sacrifices brought before me here. Remembering the rift torn between humanity in its sin and us in our holiness. And so that theme of holiness, the crucial underlying thread to the whole drama, is woven into 
everything and is what drives all the excellence therein. And so all the excellent tools and vessels that will be needed for all the business of the temple are cast or covered in the most precious metal their use can stand, most of it gold. Things to handle water, wood, blood, ash, flour, oil, cakes, bones, what have you. High-temperature tools are fashioned of bronze. It takes years to get it all done. The building, fashioning, decorating, equipping. Finally, though, everything, from the giant cherubim to small incense spoons, it's all ready for us to move into our new home or rather the manifestation of our presence, is ready to shift to its new residence. It's a scene reminiscent of David's return of the ark to Jerusalem in terms of how many gather from among the people and leaders of Israel, the elders from all the twelve tribes, and every priest and Levite able to walk. 1 Kings 8, 2 Chronicles 5 Solomon doesn't quite dance before the ark with the reckless abandon his father displayed, but the king is definitely in the moment. Using all the precautions and procedures we had set in place long ago for its transport, the priests very carefully carry the ark. They reverently slip wooden poles of exact size through the rings on its side corners and then prayerfully march north through the streets of Jerusalem to my ark's new home under the joyful eyes of the whole assembly. No dropping, dipping, tripping, or zapping this time. Whew. With delicate, relieved awe, the priests place the ark in its new resting place within the Holy of Holies constructed at the very rear of the temple another perfect cube room as in the tabernacle, this time with the addition of those fierce cherubim stretching their wings out over the ark like a canopy, a holy throne fit for the king. To signify from the outset that I am pleased with these new accommodations, I fill the place with smoke as the priests take their leave. No dry eyes required. There is so much to contemplate and reflect upon with regard to my actual moving in to my new home. We will save all that grandeur until next time on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook. Then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself. <laughs>